Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Le Vital Core Salon. I'm your host and salonier, Kara Snyder. And if you're new, let me get you up to speed. Every episode, I introduce you to a modern woman leaving her unique stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout stop her. Today's guest definitely exemplifies the mission of this podcast. It's funny, I can't believe I hadn't stumbled on her work myself. Literally, sometimes an episode starts when I bump into a woman physically at an event or a conference or just randomly out in the world. And sometimes a friend like Andrew over at the Sounds and Vision podcast suggests a guest like today's, Catherine Hayhoe, because they know what I geek out most about. Let me tell you a little bit about Catherine. She's an atmospheric scientist whose research focuses on understanding what climate change means for people in the places where they actually live. She's going to talk more about what that means. Plus, she's a professor at Texas Tech University and hosts the PBS digital series Global Weirdin. She's also been named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People and Fortune's 50 World's Greatest Leaders. I'm so grateful she found time to drop by Le Vital Core Salon to talk about climate change, but also talk about how we talk about climate change or really any complex issue and what we can actually do about climate change in our own unique ways. As you listen to this episode, I have two challenges for you. One, I challenge you to think of a woman in your life that needs to know about Catherine and her work or would totally geek out about it just like I do. Please share this episode with them. And two, think about one even tiny action that you can take to make a positive impact on climate change. It's so important that we all do our part. Voila, meet Catherine Hayhoe. Catherine, I've had the pleasure of falling down the hey-ho rabbit hole over the last few weeks, but I understand some of my listeners may sort of know of your work and may have heard your name, but not know what you do. So I want to get everyone on the same page. Can you start by telling us what you do as an atmospheric scientist? Sure. Uh, so I specifically study what climate change means to us in the places where we live. So often when somebody says climate change or global warming, we think about polar bears or maybe people in the future or people who live on low-lying islands in the South Pacific who are being flooded by sea level rise. But we don't really understand what it means to us here where we live, how it's actually already affecting us today, and even more importantly, what we can do about it. And here for you is in West Texas these days, but what does here mean for your work? I work uh, around North America and really around the world working with cities and organizations who are trying to make sure that they're prepared for and resilient against the impacts of a changing climate, whether it's increased risk of flood or stronger coastal storms and hurricanes or 
longer and stronger heat waves in the summer or more severe droughts or wildfire burning greater areas and also affecting our air quality and our health. So whatever it is that we're already concerned about, nine times out of 10, climate change is taking those things and making them worse. So I do a lot of work in Texas where I live. I do some work in Canada where I'm from, but I also work around North America and even in a few other places around the world, um, including we have a project in India right now, because climate change truly is a global issue that affects us in very local ways. I like how you are macro and micro all at the same time, right? Like that you're recognizing that this is a larger problem. And and your comments actually remind me of a conversation that I had with astronaut Nicole Stott, where she talked about we all share that thin blue line around the Earth. Yet your work is drilling down into super specific areas, if I'm correct, right? Oh, yeah, very specific. I mean, we've even looked at, you know, uh, will you have enough snowpack for the Christmas season at certain ski hills? Or um, will the really bad heat wave they had in Chicago in the 1990s, how frequently will that heat wave recur in the future? You have to make it specific because that's what matters to us. Yet at the same time, again, it's this huge global problem that's affecting every single one of us around the entire world. And it's getting worse and worse. And if we don't do something to fix it, which means weaning ourselves off fossil fuels, which is how we've gotten most of our energy over the last few hundred years, and replacing those sources of energy with clean energy that doesn't produce heat-trapping gases, if we don't do that sooner rather than later, we will be facing impacts that we can't prepare and adapt for. So how do you sit with that knowledge every single day? (laughs) I I know, I was going to say that's a little depressing, isn't it? (laughs) Well, and it's funny, I mean, with this being a show that we often talk about bullshit and burnout in different ways. I feel like there were a hundred different ways to come at that very topic as I was going through your work. But I imagine that sits on you really heavy. Mm-hmm. It does. Well, I mean, bullshit and burnout is basically the description of what I do. <laughs> so yes, we can go on this in all different ways. I Speaking of BS, I get that every single day, um, mostly on social media, on Twitter or Facebook, but a lot of it also letters, emails, even phone calls, people saying, oh, climate isn't changing, or it's been warmer before. You scientists are just making this up to line your pockets with government grants. <laughs> uh, but then when we look at when we look at the science, that's where we see the burnout. I mean, I don't find any hope at all in the science. It seems like almost every new study that comes out shows that climate is changing faster or to a greater extent or affecting us in new and different ways that we didn't even know about before. So, when we talk about, well, how do, how do you keep going when, on the one hand, the science I do just gets more and more depressing, and then, um, you know, the attacks that I and other climate scientists are subjected to on a daily basis just get um, more hateful and more threatening uh, week by week. H- how do you kind of, you know, thread the middle on this? And the answer for that is, I found I have to actively go out and look for hope because hope is not a passive emotion. If we kind of wait for hope to arrive, well, the media, the news, we just get bombarded with negative stories and horrible stories and frightening stories and frustrating stories. But if we go out and we look for hope, we can find it. And 
a lot of the hope that I find is in what people are doing, um, what just individual people are doing, what uh, kids are doing, what senior citizens are doing, what uh, people are doing in the business and tech sectors on clean energy. Um, there's some really good news out there, but you have to go out and look for it. And we have to because hope is what keeps us going. Fear will not motivate the long-term change we need to fix this problem. We have to have that vision of a better future, and that is what we all need to be aiming towards. I imagine fear is somewhat of a motivator, though. Um, it is, but fear is a good motivator for short-term kind of knee-jerk reactions. So, you know, fear makes you run away from the bear. Um, fear makes you, you know, do something immediately to try to fix the problem. But climate change is a long-term, really long-term issue. And we have to make substantial foundational changes in, you know, the way that we get our energy and the way that we grow our food. And we're in it for the long haul. It's going to take years and even decades to put these changes into motion to see them come to fruition. And fear alone is not enough because if we maintain our momentum by fear, we're just going to burn out. Fear burns us out. It kind of takes us to the edge. And eventually when we can't maintain that fear and anxiety any longer, we drop off over the edge and just to the point where we say, well, you know, nothing I do makes a difference. We can't fix this anyways. Um, Things aren't changing quick enough. I'm just going to check out. Yes. And that's sort of on the existential mental side of things. But then as someone who is a health and lifestyle strategist for a long time, I mean, just the impacts on our human bodies as well from that kind of chronic stress driven by fear. Yes. Um, and, and really, one of the biggest growing areas right now is in the, the psychology and the mental health community, understanding the impacts that climate change is having on our mental health, both through, um, you know, increasing and exacerbating disasters like hurricanes and wildfire that have a huge impact on us emotionally and physically. But then also just the whole idea of, well, how are we going to fix something this big? I'm just one person. What can I do? And that is really stressful too. So that's why going out and looking for those those points and those stories of hope is so important. And actually on that topic, let me just, you know, share with you a couple of examples. Um, Please. Yes, uh, because we need we need this to keep us going. So um, I gave a TED talk a couple months ago uh, called the most something along the lines of the most important thing that we can do about climate change is talk about it because we don't have these conversations because we're afraid they might be too contentious or they might just be too depressing. Or we feel like, well, you know, what can I actually say that I want to talk about? So in my TED Talk, I talk about how we can have positive, constructive conversations and about how it's so important to have these conversations because if we don't ever talk about this, which survey data shows we don't, then why would we care? And if we don't care, why would we want to and why would we even think that we can fix it? So I was giving a talk at an organization called the Faraday Institute for Science and Faith, which is a a Christian organization aimed at bringing together issues of faith and science. And at the end of it, a man came up to me and he said, well, you don't know me, but I'm from this this little town, you know, just a few thousand people. And I heard you say that we need to talk about this. So we committed to have conversations about climate change. And we have already, just over the past few months, had 10,000 conversations about climate change. And now our town is going to declare a climate emergency because we realize how important this issue is. Whoa, I'm fighting (laughs) off tears hearing that. Me too. I love on such a small and personal level, your work is able to really permeate into the culture. It, oh, yeah, I had tears in my eyes, too. Um, and, and then um, 
one question I often get from kids is, or from parents is, well, you know, how do I talk to my kids about this? Or as a kid, you know, I'm just a kid. What can I do? So for our, our global weirding series, which is a little series of short videos, like five or six minute videos on YouTube called Global Weirding, we decided to do an episode called I'm Just One Kid. What can I do? Because I figured, well, you know, I should look into, well, what can kids do? Oh my goodness. It was, it was not just hopeful. It was humbling. I mean, kids are just <laughs> doing amazing things. So um, one girl, called Sarah decided that she was going to figure out how to grow algae and turn it into fuel. So she started conducting her experiments under her bed and then her, I think her mom kicked her out into the garage. Um, and <laughs> she eventually won the Intel Science Fair for her project on how to grow algae and turn it into fuel. And she's a kid. And I'm like, oh my goodness. So you know, just and then, of course, nowadays with the children's climate strikes, uh, many of them being led by young women, which is yes. amazing. Um, and then it's quite yeah, a yes. woman. <laughs> Well, Greta, and we've also got Alexandria and Haven and others right here in the U.S. I mean, it is just spreading like wildfire around the world. Um, and then there was just a study that came out from some of my colleagues in North Carolina where they looked at the effect that um, educating children on climate change, not just how, how bad it is, but, you know, what we can do about it, because I think we need what I call rational hope, hope that is informed by a full awareness of this is really serious, but it also talks about you know, what we can do. So what's the impact of educating children on their parents' opinions? And they found in North Carolina, which is a very conservative part of the U.S., that there was a significant impact um, on parents becoming more aware of and more concerned about climate change when their children learned about it in school and brought it home. And furthermore, they found, interestingly, that daughters had the biggest impact on their conservative father's opinions, which I thought was awesome. Wow. Do they have an understanding of why that is? Um, I think it's just, you know, the influence that kids have on their parents and the fact that kids are just so genuine and so sincere. They don't have ulterior motives. They're not, you know, they're not, they don't care about something because of all these, you know, decisions that they've weighed and made a pragmatic decision. They wear their hearts on their sleeves and it's just, it's so compelling. And so, you know, how can you resist? This is amazing. I've... Mm -hmm. How do you not feel a thousand different emotions sort of oscillating at a huge degree every hour of your day? <laughs> I do. That's exactly the way I feel. So so the hope exists. And I try to make sure I post these hopeful stories um, on, on Facebook, um, on Twitter, on, on Instagram, on social media, because we need this hope. We need to know that uh, in, in 2017, I don't have the numbers yet for 2018, but we need to know that in 2017, 70% of new energy installed around the world was clean energy wind, solar, and more. Um, the fact that places in Southeast Asia and Africa where they don't have any energy, any power of any kind, um, solar is going in there and installing, you know, like pay-as-you-go solar that helps people actually uh, get energy in places where they didn't have it. And uh, Project Drawdown has this amazing list of 100 different solutions to climate change. And on this list, number three on their list is reducing food waste. Because we throw out a third of the food that we produce and reducing food waste has such a huge impact because when food decays, it produces heat-trapping gases. It also helps with global hunger. And then number six on their list is the education of women and girls in developing countries. I mean, the, these solutions just make you so hopeful because we understand how it would be a better world if we wasted less food, less people would go hungry. It would be a much better world if, if girls and women were more educated, especially in poor countries where infant mortality tracks directly with the education level of the mother. Um, it gives us this vision of what a better future really could look like. 
I love that you're sharing this. And everyone listening really should try to get their hands on a copy of Project Drawdown. The It's an amazing book and so actionable and in terms of breaking things down for the, the non-science heads among us. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it's permeating everywhere. Like I just when you were saying that, it flashed me back to going to see the band U2 last fall, I believe, in the in New York. And literally, they had panels and video boards flashing like in, during the show and during different songs and in between. And one of them was all about educating women and girls. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's wild to see how it's such a part of pop culture, yet the knowledge is so overwhelming at the same time for people. Yes, but that's why we have to break down not only the impacts, but the solutions. We have to recognize, well, what is it that I can do in my life, who I am, where I'm at, that actually makes a difference? And that's why I think that um, recognizing and understanding that talking about this issue is so important um, because every single one of us is able generally to communicate in some way. We can communicate uh, verbally, we can communicate online, we can communicate in a lot of different ways. And, you know, we might not be able to afford an electric car, you know, where I live, they don't even have curbside recycling, for goodness sake. So I do recycle through the university, but, you know, it's hard to be, you know, bag everything up and take it with you to, to work. Um, so, so, and, you know, people might be like, well, I, you know, I rent, I'm a student, I don't even own my light bulbs. Um, but every single one of us can talk about this issue. And the most important thing we can do is um, not change a light bulb, but rather change a politician. Uh, because uh, the politicians, <laughs> the leaders, not, you know, at our city, at our state, at our province, at the national and federal level, they're the ones who are making the decisions decisions. And so changing a politician's mind, I think, is one of the most important things we can do. And every single person um, can can talk to their elected officials and say, hey, you know, we're on the same page. We both care about the place where we live. We want people to be healthy and happy and have jobs and have food to eat and clean air to breathe. We're on the same page there, even if we might not be on the same page on, on other issues. So so let's talk about um, how we could work together to help ensure that, that our future looks better than our past. What do you find as some of the stuff that gets kicked up when you're trying to have those conversations? What can what can listeners who are like, all right, I'm going to talk about this more. How can they prepare themselves for what they may have to navigate and what's worked well for you? Ah, yes. I have had um, several thousand conversations. And so <laughs> I can say that that when you bring up the issue of climate change, um, that people often react with, or maybe they may already have initiated with, and then you're reacting to them, they may initiate with um, what I call sciency or religiously sounding smoke screens. What are those? Well, a typical sciencey sounding smokescreen might be something like, oh, you know, they say climate is changing, but it's just a natural cycle because we know it's been warmer before. Or, you know, I heard that the sun's getting actually cooler now, so we don't have to worry about it or, you know, something like that. And then a, a religiously sounding smokescreen is, well, you know, God's going to take care of it. God said that, you know, God's in control. You know, the world's going to end anyway, so it doesn't really matter. So people throw up these smoke screens, but the interesting thing is that if you if you let them talk within, you know, anywhere from a few seconds to a minute, the conversation will take an abrupt turn into and fixing it would destroy the economy. Or, you know, China produces way more than we do anyway, so there's nothing we can do. Or, you know, if if we're really going to fix it, it means I couldn't drive my truck anymore. So what it really is, is it's solution aversion. 
But to say that, yes, it's a real problem, but I don't want to fix it, that makes us a bad guy. And nobody wants to be the bad guy. We all want to be the good people, the people who help others. So what we do is we subconsciously throw up these smoke screens to kind of explain away the issue so we don't have to confront the actual problem, which is that we don't think we want to fix it. And that's why talking about solutions is so important. So if we're going to have a conversation, and in my TED Talk, I get into this in a bit more detail, um, if we want to have a conversation, the first place to start is not where we most disagree, but rather with what we most agree about. And then connect the dots between that and why we would care. So if we both care about our kids, if we're both birders or hikers, if we care about, you know, the local economy, if, you know, if Uncle Joe's worried about, you know, the economy in China getting ahead, well, you know, did you know, Uncle Joe, that China's way ahead of the U.S. when it comes to clean energy? They have more wind and solar energy than any other country in the world and we're falling behind and energy is what powers the economy are you okay with us falling behind to china <laughs> no no i'm not um, and talking about about positive solutions is also really important um things that we can do individually in our lives um stepping on the carbon scales figuring out where our carbon footprint comes from reducing food waste is a big part of what we can do eating lower down the food chain is really important too because especially beef and pork produces a lot of heat trapping gas emissions and takes a lot of energy to produce Talking about new technology, talking about the fact that there's a lot of jobs all up the middle of the U.S. Um, and increasingly in Canada, too, that are provided by wind and solar energy. Here in Texas, we've got, I think, 32,000 of them as of the last count, which is a lot of jobs when you think about it. And the wow. fact that, yeah, in the U.S., there's more jobs in the solar energy industry than there is in the coal industry. So there's a lot of really interesting factoids that we can talk about with people that actually directly address the solution aversion and show them that there's positive changes we can make in our own lives, but there's already positive changes happening in the economy here and around the world that are really making a difference. Catherine, I love what you're doing. And a fact that you don't know about me and some of the listeners may not know about me is I volunteer as a mediator. So I'm hearing your approach and I was like, oh, look, just sort of triangulating needs, like recognizing that underneath the conversations that we're having, underneath the conflicts that we're having, everybody is running these different scripts for their basic needs. And I, I think... Marshall Rosenberg defined, if I remember right, like around 54 of them. And a lot of the times in these kind of tense conversations, we're not saying, I have a need for safety, I have a need for security, but we are expressing them in the way that we're digging in around a problem. So I love mm -hmm. what you're talking about in terms of giving people the time and space to kind of say what they need to say. And also, as they're doing that, they're going to deliver up information to you as the listener about like what's really important to them, why mm -hmm. they really care about something, and why they're coming at it from this or that perspective. Brilliant. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Because so often we start these conversations with the assumption Ooh. that whoever, yeah, yeah, whoever we're talking to doesn't have the right values, and our we've seen you know, our job is to you know instill the right values. Well, you know we can spot somebody waving the bony figure of judgment at us a mile away, and I don't know about you, but I can't stand somebody who's coming at me with you know I will fix you attitude, and I I actually get people like that a lot. Um, so, so, so that's a conversation ender. But if we start the conversation with the assumption that they do have the values they need to care, but they just haven't connected the dots. Now, those might be different than ours, but 
you know, we're all humans. We all live on this planet. We all really do want a better world. We might have slightly different visions of what that looks like, but we want safety. We want security. We want access to resources. We want a a life that doesn't get worse, but gets better. Um, Fundamentally, there's much more that we have in common than what divides us. Although, unfortunately, today, increasingly, it seems that all of the public discourse is focusing on what divides us rather than what unites us. Yes, which is so draining for people. And everything is so charged and sensationalized now. It's so much work to find facts through all of that. Uh, Yes. How do you do that? Because I imagine with such an analytical, scientific mind, you're able to probably cut through the noise in a way that might be helpful for the listeners to hear. Hmm. Well, uh, what I've done is I've spent so much time studying information and and disinformation and misinformation and how people, techniques that people use to muddy the waters on climate science that I've started to develop kind of like a sixth sense where I can pick up when these techniques are being used in other areas too. So it's really interesting to know that there's actually very specific techniques that people use when they want to mislead us. Um, One of those is cherry picking. So that is just, you know, picking really small, tiny little bits of information that support their perspective and then ignoring everything else. Um, Another one is fake experts bringing in people who sound like they know what they're talking about and they have a title that kind of superficially sounds like they might be an expert. But when you start digging into it, it turns out that they have no background or expertise whatsoever in what they're talking about. It's sort of akin to dressing up a doctor, you know, back on TV in the 1970s and 80s and pretending that they know about cancer and they're saying, oh, smoking is fine, when of course it isn't and they have no, 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 no legitimate credentials to say that anyways. And then, um, you know, logical fallacies and, um, you know, saying it's cold outside, therefore, you know, the entire planet can't be warming over time scales of decades. Um, things like that I see all the time in my world. And so it started to help me recognize when people are trying to pull the wool over our eyes in other areas. But um, when we're not familiar with those techniques, it's really hard to see because you see somebody very, you know, who, who you perceive to be credible, whose values you share, who's saying something that sounds pretty reasonable, like, you know, NASA experts say that this glacier is growing now. Well, so if the glacier is growing, then why are all these people worried about, you know, the ice caps melting and sea level rising? And so we think, oh, that's okay. And and the thing is, mentally, we're looking for a reason not to worry, right? Because it's a lot easier if we don't have to worry about sea level rise, given the fact that two-thirds of the world's biggest cities are within just a few feet of sea level. Um, and of course, the reality is, is that, you know, the, the vast majority of glaciers around the world and the ice caps are melting quicker than ever. Um, and once in a while, you find an odd glacier that just happens to be growing for a little bit because as it gets warmer, you get more snow in that area, actually. So it's really hard for us to sort through that misinformation. So that's part of why I made our Global Weirding series on PBS because every little Global Weirding episode answers a frequently asked question that we get. And then there's also a really fantastic resource called skepticalscience.com that goes through all of the sciencey sounding objections or smoke screens that people use when it comes to climate change. But if you take the results or the answers from uh, Skeptical Science or even from our Global Weirding episode and you take those to Uncle Joe, who, you know, every time you have a family dinner, Uncle Joe says, well, I heard all those scientists are just faking the data. Um, and, you, and you show Uncle Joe the facts, that's not going to change Uncle Joe's mind. I mean, I can tell you this. I've tried this myself. It does not <laughs> change. And then if he's your own personal uncle, it's even worse. Yes, because um, then yes. every dinner after that is affected. 
<laughs> oh yes, yes, and they and they believe you even less somehow if they're related to you than if they don't aren't. Um, but if if you have a conversation, not about are there more polar bears now than there used to be, but rather about, you know, hey, look at how clean energy is moving across this country. Did you know actually that? Um, we have so many more jobs and it's growing so much faster. Why is it, do you think, that the administration is investing in coal when we have cheap solar and wind energy that costs less than coal and is growing more jobs across the country? Isn't that kind of like investing in horses and buggies when Henry Ford is turning out the Model T Ford? That isn't really a good reflection of American leadership and exceptionalism, is it? And then all of a sudden you have a completely different conversation that it connects directly to Uncle Joe's values. <laughs> Catherine, this is brilliant. This is so good. I have to ask, though, because you're getting pushback from, quote unquote, Uncle Joe around your table, not recognizing your credentials because you're related. But you are a woman with some serious credentials. Like when people talk about like the nebulous client scientists say, like, you are actually one of those people. You, you are the ubiquitous they. <laughs> I am, I am. And it's interesting because a lot of people have, well, backing up a little bit, the most important predictor of whether we agree with the simple facts that climate is changing, humans are responsible, the impacts are serious, and we really should fix it. The most important predictor is not how much we know about the science these days. It's simply where we fall in the political spectrum. And in fact, the smarter we are, if we already disagree with that, the smarter we are, the better we are at just cherry picking the data that supports our pre-existing opinion. So often some people, especially um, some of my husband's friends, you know, he will, I've actually heard him say to a few of them, you know, you say those climate scientists and those people, but here's Catherine, you know her, you know, she is a climate scientist. How can you say? And then what it's really interesting, people just can't compute. They can't actually look at you and say, oh, yeah, so the, the people I'm accusing of, you know, all these nefarious things, you are actually one of them and I wouldn't accuse you. And so sometimes I've even asked people, I said, well, you know, here's your choices. Um, either I am a complete idiot and I have no idea what I'm talking about. So, you know, I've been working in this field for 25 years, but I really have no clue. So I'm just completely deceived. I've had the wool pulled over my eyes. You who have no background in climate science, you know the truth, but I in this field, when, you know, with a PhD, I know nothing. A, choice A. Choice B is I'm in on it. I'm in on this conspiracy. I'm one of the ones manufacturing and faking this data, a conspiracy that is worthy of Illuminati proportions because it goes back to the 1800s. <laughs> That's how long we've known that digging up and burning coal and gas and oil is wrapping an extra blanket around the planet, heating the planet. Or C, I'm right. Which choice do you pick? Because there's only three choices here. And it's really interesting because um, people can't really compute, like they can't pick one of those because we're not used to seeing those climate scientists as a fellow human who we can look in the eyeballs and relate to what we live in is we live in a society where people who are different than us are deliberately and systematically being subhumanized being presented and and portrayed as other than us as so other than us that they're not even human like us and so once we it's a very slippery slope and i know exactly what you're thinking if you're listening you know this is sounding a lot like what happened back in world war ii yes um it is a slippery slope where we start to think of and portray people who have different um, opinions or access to different information than us as so other that they're not even quite human uh, because then all of a sudden we can't relate to each other and we can't have constructive conversations so that's why i think it's really hard to have constructive 
constructive conversations on social media. And my goal is really not to change anybody's mind on social media. Once in a while it happens, and when it does, I feel like it's a miracle. But my goal is really to have personal conversations with people because when we're looking at each other eyeball to eyeball, it's really hard to treat the other person as subhuman when we're actually looking into each other's face. Whereas once we're behind a computer, you know, typing into a screen, it's really easy to dehumanize each other. And I think that's a big part of the problem that we have today. It is a huge part of the problem that we have today. And I feel like it's growing worse. And that social fabric is unwinding itself and fraying at such an unprecedented rate, probably as fast as climate change. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and your the people that you are interacting with on the regular, I mean, when you're talking about presenting these three choices to a person, I mean, you're a woman of faith and you're living in West Texas. I imagine that you probably can't leave the house without flack these days. Um, that's pretty much true. And I have to say that in casual conversation, you know, at a parent's night at school or at the grocery store, somebody says, what do you do? Sometimes when I don't want to get into it, they say, oh, I work at the university. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> um, because um, as soon as you say, well, what do you do? So I was just um, recently visiting the UK to give a series of lectures and we were just, you know, crossing passport control and the person at, at the passport control said, you know, why are you here? I said to give some lectures. And he said, well, what are you talking about? So I said, climate change. Oh my goodness, it was a 20 minute conversation <laughs> at passport control. And I felt really bad because there was a bit of a line behind us, but he wanted to know. He wanted to know is it really real what they say? Because, you know, I was the first legit climate scientist. He actually had the opportunity to buttonhole, so he wasn't letting me go. <laughs> and we had a really fantastic conversation because he had all his questions lined up all the way from is it as bad as they say to does buying an electric car really help? And then I went to, um, you know, to rent a car. And then I had the same conversation with the guy at the car rental place. He wanted to know all about, well, he'd been reading about this and that. Was this really true? I mean, so you're having these incredible conversations with people. And it's, it's really positive because they have questions that they want answers to, which I think is great. Um, and we're also talking about solutions. And I have the opportunity to even talk about things like, well, you know, I don't travel internationally very much at all compared to most of my colleagues because that's the biggest part of my carbon footprint. So I only travel after I've put together all kinds of invitations to multiple places where I can just, you know, take the train or drive a very short distance between those places. I do most of my talks virtually, actually, about over three quarters of them now are all done virtually. And I also also use a carbon offsetting program uh, called Climate Stewards that is a nonprofit that actually helps people in poor countries to uh, with clean cook stove programs. They don't have to cut down trees and they also reduce indoor air pollution, which currently kills millions of people around the world every year, mostly women and children. Um, and we can have like conversations about, you know, well, what are you doing? Well, what are you doing? What does this look like? Well, you know, what's happening in the places where I live? Um, we've seen our flood risk increase. We've seen these crazy storms. Does this have anything to do with climate change? So, there, there are some negative conversations for sure, but I would have to say these days, most of the conversations, especially when they realize that, you know, I'm not going to start wagging a bony finger of judgment at them or jumping down their throat. Most of the conversations these days, people are just really curious. And I think that's a fantastic place to start. That is so amazing to hear. Thank you for sharing that, because I know we can see little bits of, of some of the conversations or experiences you have sprinkled in social media, but it is talk about finding hope. Like, here it is. Here it is yes. again. Exactly. 
<laughs> and so, so that's why I love, I do love talking to people because especially even in person, the number of exchanges that I've had in person that have been very negative are very few. I mean, I can, I can pretty much count them on the fingers of my hands. The really, really negative, you know, that ended with somebody yelling at me, you know, purple in the face over 10 years, you know, a handful of them now online in terms of, you know, people who write, people who email, people who call even, and then especially on social media, I have had thousands, like literally thousands and thousands of incredibly awful things said to me and about me. But again, that's because frankly, of the dehumanizing uh, ability of social media that we don't have to look somebody in the eyeballs. In fact, I've even had experiences where somebody came to a talk I had and they came up to me afterwards and they said, well, you know, I'd like to talk to you about this. How do you know it's not volcanoes? And I would explain to them, well, we know that volcanoes only produce a tiny fraction of the heat trapping gases that humans produce. And in fact, big volcanic eruptions actually cool the earth because they act like an umbrella. They put up all these little particles that shade the earth for a couple of months and actually temporarily cool us off and give us a bit of assistance. So we had a conversation along those lines where he had questions, but, you know, we had a good civil discussion. And then he went home and he found my email address and he sent me a two-page, single-spaced, most vile, hateful email, one of the worst I've ever received, saying awful, terrible, horrible things about me. But he couldn't say them to my face. He had to wait till he got home to the basement to say them. And that really kind of exemplifies the fact that Being human and interacting with each other as a human is the key, the most important first step to a positive and constructive conversation. Yes. And hearing that, I I feel like the compassionate me wants to reach through all of these cords and wires and give you a hug and say, I'm sorry you had to experience that. (laughs) The compassionate me also thinks about this gentleman and is like, what must be going on in his life and in his orbit? to fuel that much just hatred and negativity. Mm -hmm. And then there's the part of me that's like, wow, are we as humans really so uncomfortable with all the feelings that this topic generates that like we can't even be with the idea of it? Well, what I, what I would say, and I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. I'm is, sure you have as yes. you burn the hate mail, right? Yeah, or as I, as I archive it for further study, actually. Oh, my God. <laughs> so. Amazing. <laughs> I do. I have a very large database that I'm hoping to maybe one day find somebody who could do a textual analysis on because I think it's fascinating. Uh, because what I have found is I have found that um, hatred of, of climate scientists willing to attack people like me um, is just one of a package of toxic issues. And it is very rare for me to find somebody on social media. And before I block anyone's social media, I always look at their profile because I'm curious who these people are. So I've looked at thousands of profiles. And the reason I block people is I don't block them if they disagree with me because I feel like, well, hey, if you disagree, then let's have a a good discussion about it. I block people when they're unable to have a good discussion, when they're unable to be civil and constructive in their interactions. And so I look at their profile and it is very rare, not unheard of, but it is very rare for somebody who I have to block to not have a profile that in the United States contains references to MAGA, hatred of immigrants in Canada, hates the prime minister, really worried about Muslims taking over the country. In the U.S., is, or the U.K. is pro-Brexit. A lot of them ha- have a lot of uh, racism, have a lot of sexism. It's part of this toxic package that is, is motivated by fear. 
it, it, it all comes down to fear because when you look at what are the primary emotions that would cause you to just go out of your way to attack somebody that you've never known before, um, that has to be coming from somewhere and fear is really at the root of it. The world is changing very quickly. It's changing faster than we've ever experienced in our lifetimes. And really, you have to go back probably to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution to see a time when the world changed this quickly. And... Uh, the, our, our hierarchies are being upended and people feel that, well, you know, for a long time I've, you know, I've had my place in the queue and then all of a sudden in the name of equal rights, all these women are jumping ahead of me in the queue or, you know, in the name of, of, of fairness, they're making, you know, they're letting all these new people into the country and they, you know, they're taking things that I think belong to me. And so there's a lot of, of fear and loss that is manifesting itself in anger and climate change is only one of these issues, but it's one of the most visible ones because of, you know, thankfully, it's actually in the news a lot these days with um, the kids' climate strikes, with the climate impacts that we're hearing about, you know, wildfires and hurricanes and heat waves and floods getting worse because of a changing climate. Um, And then, of course, me being a woman makes it, you know, double as bad as it would be. And so to many of these people, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm a symbol of what they fear, of what they think is depriving them of whatever it is they're losing. And so so it isn't personal, but how could it be personal? They don't even know me. Um, you know, they say things about me that are absolutely clearly untrue. And if they just Googled it for two seconds, they could find out it's untrue. So what's motivating it? It's, it's, they're reacting to me um, as a symbol of, of, of what they fear, of what they fear, feel is depriving them of, of what they deserve. Oh, let's talk about the double impact that you mentioned of being a woman. How do you feel like gender plays into this? Uh, it absolutely plays into it because the vast majority of people who come against me are men. Vast majority. Um, you know, on social media, you can't always tell somebody's gender, but in terms of people who self-identify as a woman, have a female-sounding name and a female-sounding picture attached to their profile, um, small, tiny, tiny little number. I mean, I could pretty much count them on my fingers and my toes. Maybe I'd need a couple of extra digits, but not too many. Whereas, you know, men are in the thousands. Um, so, so first of all, um, when they're coming against me, there's this double disrespect because not only do I represent something which to them embodies or symbolizes what they most stand against, which is climate change. And, you know, part of climate change is we have to, you know, have these new regulations that I believe will impose on my freedom. And then also we've been using fossil fuels for hundreds of years and they did a great job for us. So why are they saying we have to change now? That's, you know, a double, you know, double fear of change. Mm -hmm. Um, But being a woman is part of it because here I am, I'm a professional woman. I'm out in the, in the public sphere. And so I get, you know, some things that say literally, I mean, as blatant as the problem with this world is that when you woman left the kitchen, if we didn't have women try to run things in this world, we wouldn't have these problems. Um, I get a lot of, you know, the religiously sounding smoke screens lead people to call me Jezebel and, you know, whore of Babylon and, you know, oh hand, handmaiden of the beast and high priestess of the Antichrist. <laughs> I get a fair amount of that. Please have um, the t-shirts made. I feel like. <laughs> I've thought about it. <laughs> I absolutely have. Uh, so it's doubly... Um, disturbing because so much of this hate comes from men and some of it is 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 very threatening i mean i've had um threats of physical harm i have had people mail things i have had people come to campus looking for me i've had people call the university trying to get the university to fire me um it really is um concerning and worrying and so as a woman i've I've taken the steps that i can take personally um to ensure that i'm safe but it's definitely a concern and a worry How does that worry and concern and all of this just cesspool behavior from people, 
how does that not burn you completely out? Because you sound so energetic and you're talking so fast and you're so positive as we're going back and forth. Hopefully not too fast. <laughs> yes. No. But how how do you keep from burning out when you're facing this kind of threat to even your basic human safety? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it is really hard. And um, definitely I've had to develop some coping strategies. And, you know, some days when, especially on social media, when the hatred has just been overwhelming, it's just, it is just kind of sad and depressing. Like you just kind of feel like you're in a very dark place where all you're seeing is the negativity and you just have to put stuff down, go away and specifically look out for something positive, enjoy something with your family, you know, um, go pat the pet, go, you know, Google and look for some positive information that makes you actually feel excited. Or I actually keep a a folder of the nice notes that I received and I go back to them and I read some of the nice notes to remind me that there's great people in the world who are really awesome and who who go out of their way to encourage somebody who they don't know. Um, But really fundamentally, one of the most important things for me, um, especially reaching out and engaging publicly and getting this type of feedback, is to recognize that who I am, my value, my worth... Um, does not depend on what these people think about me. What they think about me is irrelevant. And then also going hand in hand with that is I had to consciously, and this is really hard for a scientist to do, probably for all of us actually, I had to consciously give up, decide that I was going to give up my right to be correctly represented. I was going to give up my right to not be lied about, not be misrepresented, not to have people saying false things about me. Um, I was just going to give up that right. Because if I spent all my time trying to prove to somebody that you said X about me and that's not true, or you posted this about me and that's not true, that would just consume me. So I gave up my right to be correctly represented. And now when I see somebody saying something about me that's totally false, sometimes, you know, can't help getting a bit angry, but, you know, ultimately I'm like, you know what? Doesn't matter if somebody's stupid enough to believe that. Well, you know, go ahead and do that. But fundamentally understanding, and this is where my faith really comes in, because as a Christian, we believe that who we are is not what we do. So we our, our value and our worth is not based on what we've accomplished or what other people say about us and what other people believe about us. It's just based on who God says we are. Um, and so that's just been a really hopeful thing to, for me to remind myself of is that, you know, when it gets really bad, when people are saying terrible, horrible, ugly, awful things about me, um, that, that that isn't who I am and it doesn't actually make any difference um, to who I am, to how I think about myself and to the outcome of what I'm doing. And my faith also comes into it in a different aspect, which is the fact that I also believe that um, as a Christian, we very much walk in the good works that God has prepared for us in advance. And so that helps because (laughs) often we're looking for tangible results of what we're doing. Like we're almost looking for notches on our belt of, you know, how many people have we changed their minds or how much carbon have we reduced or, uh, and sometimes you just don't know. Like I could have, you know, said one thing to one person years ago and that could bear fruit, you know, decades down the road that I even had no idea about. And maybe the most impactful thing I had a simple conversation with one student and I even never knew how that changed their life and led to them you know, who knows, inventing something or becoming some type of leader or changing something, you don't know. And so, so the freedom of doing what I feel that I'm called to do, but then releasing the results. So just saying, you know, I have done everything that I can, but I release the results and I don't judge my performance or myself or my value on the results either. That is also incredibly freeing. Catherine, that sounds a little bit more Buddhist than Christian. 
Uh, no, I think it's very Christian. Well, unfortunately, unfortunately, it's Christians who often buy into the whole performance thing too. Um, but but it really is what we fundamentally um, believe as Christians. So it's really it's really interesting when you start to kind of integrate that with your life. And I feel like I've learned a lot and grown a lot in my faith through the. Um, the negative situations that I've encountered. And it's interesting because when it talks about hope in the Bible, it actually specifically says that. It says that um, suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. So the hope actually comes from somewhere that you wouldn't expect. The hope comes from the negative circumstances and experiences and then how we actually react to those, how we grow from those, and then how that in turn develops hope, which is really kind of the opposite of how we often think about it, isn't it? Yes, And this is such a brilliant lesson for all of us. And I I think, stepping back from what you just said, your humility is so inspiring. I imagine people have a lot of preconceived notions about what you're going to be like before they talk to you. And, you know, it was funny as I was doing the research and digging in, it was like I just kept seeing signs of like humility, being humble, smart, teaching, like all of these things. And I've been so excited to talk to you. And it's, it's amazing that in dealing with this kind of adversity and dealing with this kind of hostility on the regular, you're still able to find the the lesson in it and move humbly through it. It's so inspiring. Oh, thank you. I, I agree, because I feel like, you know, everything really is a lesson. What can we learn from it? And and part of what I've learned, too, is is when not to engage. And this is a really interesting <laughs> lesson because often people think, well, you know, the, the stronger somebody comes against us, the more we know we should focus on that person. And sometimes I've learned that, you know, there, there is a group of people, I, I call them dismissives because they would dismiss every piece of evidence you present them with of any way type. Um, there, there are people who it really is a waste of time to engage with. And so one of the biggest lessons I've learned is how can we spend our time wisely? Because if somebody truly is dismissive, they are never going to be convinced by anything I ever say about anything, impact solutions, anything. So even though they may be the loudest voice, really the most effective thing to do is to just move away and actually engage with people who might be doubtful or disengaged or cautious or curious um, because we can make a difference there. So, And and that's something I think that's really effective too in, in avoiding burnout is you know, when, recognize when it is that we're butting our head against a wall and, and where, where it is that the doors are open and where it is that the doors truly are closed. Yeah, where you can get that productive conversation. It, I mean, I, I think about that just even in the conflicts, you know, local conflicts and things like that here when people aren't agreeing about things. I always just like to take a quieter, more somewhat Socratic method <laughs> to it and just really like where can we listen where can we be curious where can we ask more questions where can we really understand what's stressing that person out that we're talking to because that's where the answers are going to be somewhere in those weeds usually you're so right yes (laughs) yes and yet the alternative is just ramming our heads together like two rocks and going nowhere so Mm -hmm. not worth it Catherine, I know you're a busy woman and you're pressed for time. I have one more question for you because I know we we sort of covered a bunch of different things today. What do you most want La Vital Course Salon listeners to know or take away from our conversation? Oh, 
Uh, I think the most important thing to recognize when it comes to climate change, which is this, you know, big, complicated issue that we hear about in the news all the time. We feel like we should have an educated opinion about it. But frankly, I can't even keep up with, <laughs> you know, all the discussion of policies Thank and this and that. You. And what. <laughs> I can't even keep up with it. So if you had to kind of distill, you know, what it is and why it matters, it's just one simple concept. It's this. Climate change is a threat multiplier. So, and I didn't come up with this myself. This actually comes from the military. Um, it takes the issues that we already care about in the places where we live and it makes them worse. So it takes issues like air pollution that affect our kids' health and it makes it worse. It takes things like uh, droughts that affect our agriculture and our water resources, especially here in the middle part of the country, and it makes them worse. It takes things like hurricanes and coastal storms and it supersizes them, making them much stronger with a ton more rain associated with them, Hurricane Harvey almost 40% more rain than we would have had without a change in climate. So climate change affects each one of us in the places where we live. But, and here's the second part, who we are already is exactly the perfect person to care. With our values, with our priorities, with the things that we're passionate about, with the concerns that we have, who we are is already exactly the perfect person to care because climate change affects almost every aspect of our lives. So it isn't a case of, well, you know, I should probably care about climate change more or maybe I should become an environmentalist or maybe I should hug some trees. No, who you are is already the perfect person. We just have to connect the dots between the things that we already care about because each one of us has things that we already care about that we're already passionate about and then how climate change affects those things and when you start looking around you can find those connections whether you're passionate about beer or wine or chocolate climate change <laughs> is affecting the quality of those very important essential things um, climate change is affecting the again the quality of our air and our water it's affecting our infrastructure and the economy it's affecting international competitiveness and national security um, for me personally, I care about climate change so much because um, I grew up in uh, spending part of my life as a child in Colombia and South America. And so I had many friends who lived in very poor situations, you know, in homes that were built of bamboo or cardboard boxes um, in places where when the rains came, it would just sweep down the mountain and sweep their homes away. Um, places where when the, when the drought came, there was famine, there was no crop insurance, there was no way to get any extra money. And so I care about climate change because it disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable people in the world. Um, the people who are already struggling, who are already living on the edge, who are already trying to feed their family off a dollar or two a day, those are the people who are most affected. And that is absolutely not fair. And so that passion for justice, that passion for um, caring about people who don't have the voice and the resources to speak for themselves, that's what drove me to actually completely switch my career. I was planning to be an astrophysicist, actually. <laughs> in the first place. I, I completely switched my career to climate science and I don't just do the science. I also talk to people about it because it is truly one of the most unfair and unjust issues I have ever seen. And it takes issues like poverty and hunger, issues like racism and sexism, issues like um, refugee crises and um, political insecurity and it exacerbates them and it makes them worse. So so my, my question and my challenge to everybody is, first of all, what is it that you already care about, that you're already passionate about? Something from, you know, just something in your personal life to some big global issue. That what, what do you already care about? Find out how climate change affects it. And then second of all, who could you have a conversation with where you begin that conversation, not with something that you disagree on, but with something that you agree on, maybe on that thing that you already thought about that you care about that climate change is affecting? How could you have a conversation with them today? 
Catherine, this is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful advice. And I think makes it so actionable. I think people should also check out Global Weirding. I went down that rabbit hole big time because there's so much good information. And to your point, the frequently asked questions in plain language that anyone from probably a 10-year-old to an 80-year-old can understand. And everything you've given us today is hopefully going to be so impactful on the, the hearts and minds of the listeners And we are so blessed to have you make that career change and be doing this work and working so tirelessly to keep our sorry butts safer. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly it. We're doing this for all of us because it matters to all of us. And so even at the most basic, you know, hey, are you a human? If you're a human, then you already have the values you need to care. That's all we need. Catherine, is there anything else that you want to add that you don't feel like we got to? Oh, I feel like there's so much more that we could talk about. I know. About, but <laughs> this I, could I have been a like, four-hour affair. Yeah, it is. Climate change really is one of those issues that's almost like a, a symptom of a lot of the issues we have today in life where we're just, we're becoming increasingly divided. We emphasize what we, what divides us, what we don't have in common. We, we become, you know, tribal. We put, you know, those people in that tribe over there, we're over here. Whereas what you do and what I do is actually, I think, really similar. We talk about, we try to bring people together because by working together, we can win and when we divide each other when we divide ourselves that's when we all lose amen i feel like sometimes there's a small part of me that thinks oh well this is just a podcast that you know reaches a thousand people or whatever but then it's funny like i have the conversations and i hear some of the things that people are doing like i know people are going to go to global weirding there's at least 10 women who i know care about the environment and are doing stuff in their own communities that are going to eat this conversation up, but then actually make something actionable from it. It's easy to feel small sometimes. And then I think at the same time, like, I don't talk about like, how I'm curating guests because they're talking about the issues that I care about or that I'm trying so hard to have half my podcast be 50% women of color, you know, but you can just do those things in the background. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And yes. <laughs> and again, it is it isn't just about caring about the environment. It's about caring about whatever it is we already care about. Um so whatever it is that we already care about, that's why we care about a changing climate. And so that I think just makes it perfect because caring about and acting on a changing climate, we don't have to change who we are. We don't have to become other than we who we are. We don't have to become an environmentalist or, you know, a tree hugger. We don't even have to vote for a different candidate. We just have to be who we are and and in fact actually a more genuine expression of who we are because who we are is a person who cares about you know whatever it is that we care about and that is being affected by a changing climate unbelievable i feel like i could talk to you all day i'm sure you get that from everybody you come in contact with (laughs) i I can talk with you all day too i love this i I would love to hear more from you but maybe next time you need to get on with your day and see mr alan alda and Thank you again for everything that you're doing, not just the podcast, but the real impact that you're making. Oh, thank you. Take care, Catherine. You too. Hey, it's Kara again. Thank you so much for listening and joining Catherine and I here in Levital Core Salon. 
Don't forget to check out her global weirding series on YouTube and check out all of the links and resources posted in the show notes over at levitalcoursesalon.com. That's L-E, vital, C-O-R-P-S, salon.com. If you dig what Catherine's doing out in the world, please show your support by sharing this podcast conversation with one woman you know, subscribing to Levital Course Salon wherever you listen to podcasts, or texting the word salon to 444-999 to receive the monthly newsletter. Before I bounce, I want to give a big merci beaucoup to Laura James for helping schedule Catherine and I and make this a reality, to Andrew Lugoldum for suggesting Catherine as a really fabulous guest. I want to thank, as always, my producer and husband, Craig Snyder, my amazing assistant who virtually dots my I's and crosses my T's, Darlene Victoria, Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for the theme song. And don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you. <laughs>